The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, for the uh, fellowship that you give to us, for, uh, for food and for coffee and for friends. We ask, Lord, now as we come to this seminal passage, this, um, this wonderful description of your love and your commitment and your grace and all that we have received in you, that you would grant us wisdom and grant us courage, uh, lest we miss your kingdom's goal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Romans chapter 8 is what uh, is prescribed in E100, the essential 100. Romans chapter 8. Uh, We're also going to look at chapter 7. But I want uh, on my headstone, Romans 8.1. Now, I, we don't do a lot of headstones uh, much these days, so I may not get a headstone. But if there's any memorial marking my existence uh, into kingdom come, uh, then I want Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what I want um, my legacy uh, to be, I hope. Um, I think in order to really look effectively at Romans 8, you probably ought to look at Romans 7. And I think the argument could be made that if you're going to look at Romans 7, you should probably look at Romans 6, and then maybe 5, 4, and 3. And if you're going to look at 3, you might as well look at at 1 and 2 first. Um, So just read all of Romans. In fact, Martin Luther said it's probably best if you just memorize it. Um, And it's only 16 chapters. So um, we're not all Martin Luther, but... Uh, but it is uh, really, uh, it is this theological center, really, of Paul, St. Paul's work, uh, of his theology, of, um, of what we understand the work of Christ to be. And um, just to give you a little context, Romans was written by St. Paul to a church that he did not found. It's one of the few, really, um, that he did not, he did not write the, um, I mean, he wrote the book of Romans, but the letter to the Romans, but he did not uh, found this church like he did the, in Corinth or in Ephesus or, or those others. It is uh, thought, perhaps, and probably, that um, the Christians who founded the church in Rome had been on pilgrimage in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. And so, um, so they were among the 3,000 that came to faith with Peter, or maybe uh, in the days following, as the numbers increase. And then when the festival is over, and they've seen their family, and they've said their goodbyes, they head on back to Rome, and, and head on with their life, and their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And they get together, and they start reading the Old Testament, and asking how Jesus is the fulfillment, and lo and behold, all of a sudden they have a church. And so... Um, and so that's probably how it happened. And, and as in Rome was such an important city that people would often uh, relocate there or travel there or go there uh, for long seasons at a time for business and things like this. And so the, there was a community that just began to develop. And also, as the Christians cared for one another, um, and people saw how unusual their care for one another was and the fact they were welcomed anyone into their fold, they, uh, the, their number grew. And so Rome was such a, was the most important city uh, in the world, in the Western world anyway, at that point, probably in the whole world, um, that uh, Paul knew how important it was to have a firm base established uh, in Rome. Also, he had his eyes, and we see this in, the, in chapter 16 of, of Romans, he had his eyes fixed across the Mediterranean on Spain. 
he wanted to go to Spain as he had been to modern day Turkey to, to uh, tell the gospel. He wanted to go and tell the gospel uh, there. Who knows? I mean, with all the more the Moorish history there, who knows what would have happened if he'd actually made it? But it looks like he was trying, at, just in the same way that Antioch, north of uh, Israel, had been the sort of home base launching pad for his first two missionary journeys, and 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 would be the third as well. It looks as if he's trying to establish. He's not been there yet. He's trying to establish a home base uh, to jump off and go with their probably financial support uh, to Spain to tell the gospel. And so this, is, this letter is essentially his credentials. This is theological resume. And uh, it is a tour de force. Romans has been at the heart of every significant Christian movement uh, in the last 2,000 years uh, when, um, when Martin Luther was studying uh, studying the book of Romans in order to teach that as he was a, a Roman monk, um, Augustinian monk, I believe, that um, he got hold of Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, got a hold of him. He began, he had always been afraid of, of God and uh, of God's judgment. And he read this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther read that. I'm sure he'd read it many, many times. But all of a sudden the Holy Spirit dropped and he uh, began to realize that righteousness was not something that he offered to God, but which something that God offered to him. And it began... He began to teach that. It began to change the Reformation. I mean, it began to start the, Re- the Reformation. As I understand, it was also at the heart of the Great Awakening. Um, Romans 1 through about, I would say, 3 and a half. Um, Romans 1 will actually be 2 and a half, I guess, into, into halfway through chapter 3. Um, basically, it says this. All are condemned by the law. The law of God. Uh, Greeks... He starts out, is, is it really interesting uh, how he starts out, kind of he's writing to, the, to Jewish Christians uh, in Rome, and he kind of starts out and kind of hooks them in by saying all those pagans, and, uh, and he kind of hooks them in, and then he just flips it on them and says, and you, uh, you, you Jewish Christians. And by the end, I mean, he says, this is where we get, uh, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. These are all Old Testament quotes that he's just stacking on top of each other. And then I'm going to read um, Romans, beginning the chapter, uh, paragraph beginning with Romans 3.21, which I personally think is the most important paragraph that's ever been written in all of writing, in any language. This is what it says, and I'm not exaggerating there, that's really what I think. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation... That's uh, an offering by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So, the righteousness of God has been revealed, manifest, apart from the law, and now is through faith. So, Romans, so he goes on, he talks about peace with God through faith and what exactly has been accomplished. But in Romans 7, uh, Paul is really trying to wrestle with, but not for himself, but for the good and the benefit of the, of the Christians, maybe for himself, for the Christians there in Rome, um, wrestling with the place of the law in the life of the believer. This is the law of God. And, um, and what he says is that the law is good. The law actually reflects the uh, righteousness of God, the character and the nature of God. The law describes a perfect life, a life that, that honors and reflects God. So the law is good. It's us that complicates things, right? Uh, we complicate things. So let me give you an example. Not the law of God, but, um, but just traffic law. Let's just say, for instance, the law is stay in your lane and don't go over the speed limit. Let's just narrow it all down. Stay in your lane and don't go over the speed limit. There's two types of people. There's one that's going to stay in their lane and they're not going to go over the speed limit, right? And they're going to be very careful that they never go over the speed limit and they're going to always stay in their lane. In fact, they're not going to come within a foot or two of the line and they're going to be very proud and want you to pat them on the back for it. And every time it comes up in conversation at a cocktail party, they're going to let you know that just in some way, they're going to slip it in that they have not gone over the speed limit and they are going to just, uh, they haven't gone over the line. They're just going to work that in there every now and then. Those are called... Pharisees, right? That's, that's, that's what those people are called. The other kind of person is going to say, well, I hadn't thought about going over the speed limit until you told me I couldn't, but now I'm going to, right? That's, those are rebels. And who are you to tell me that I can't cross that line? Watch me. Watch me. You know, it's, it's the kid. When you say, don't touch that, it's hot, they need to figure out what hot is, right? And they're going to they're gonna touch it just to see if you're telling the truth. There are some people, and those are the rebels, Right? Now, and, and most of us are some sort of combination uh, of the Pharisee and the rebel. We're Pharisaic about some things, we're rebellious about other things, and it all makes sense to us and our sort of weirdness uh, inside uh, our head. Neither one of those is going down the road thanking the city council, right? I'm so grateful they have put these restrictions in place for everyone's safety. I'm so thankful for the police who are watching over us to make sure that we involve. I'm so thankful for the engineers who had the good wisdom to build this road. Nobody is, you know who they're thinking about? Themselves. Whether they're Pharisees or rebels, they're only thinking about themselves. And that's, the law is good. The law protects. If we stay under the speed limit and we stay inside the lines, our, our, our gas prices will go down. Our insurance rates will go down. Everyone will be safe. It's for our good. But it, um, but it either creates Pharisees or people who take advantage of it. Let me just, I mean, I've heard that there are people who speed unless they think there's a cop around. I don't know uh, about that. But, um, but they think if they're going to get caught, I better go and I'm slam on the brake every time I see a cop just out. Uh, I mean, not me, uh, obviously. Um, but, um, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with the law. It's us that complicates things, right? We're the ones that are thinking about ourselves, even though the law, it's our innate inwardness that screws things up. So, let me start reading at verse 7. 
Uh, that's just an example. So you can kind of see what the law does. Verse 7 in chapter 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. There's no such thing as sin if there's no law to say that it's sin, right? Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That's what Paul says. The very commandment that promised life, remember the law is good, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. In other words, it condemned me. Right? It said, here's the standard of God, and you fall short. Therefore, you are on the outside. Because if, if we are to prove ourselves by our own goodness, then we have transgressed the law, then we are disqualified. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. So not the law, it was sin. Which is our innate inwardness, right? It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody been there? Yeah, don't raise your hands. Um, <laughs> we are in church. Um, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. In other words, I wouldn't want to do good if I didn't agree with the law. I agree with the law that the law is good. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So, in seminary, every now and then, you'd, uh, you know, we're kind of nerds, and, and you, every now and then you'd, somebody would say, hey, hey, how you doing? Well, I'm having a Romans 7 kind of day. <laughs> oh, yeah, you want to talk about that? Um, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I can, I can remember so... Caroline, who is an absolute, this is my oldest child, 14-year-old daughter, she is an absolutely lovely and remarkable young woman. It wasn't always like that. She, she was so strong-willed as a little kid. And one time I said, Caroline, like, I tell you all the time what, is, what you are to do, and why aren't you doing that? And she said, like, she was four. And she said, Dad, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't want to. <laughs> I was like, you're having a Romans 7 kind of day, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and I was like, that is human nature. And thank you, because I'll use that in sermons for the rest of my life. But um, the, um, So I, I want to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law within me 
that I want to do what is right, but evil lies close at hand. Close at hand. I delight in the law of God, but my, in my inner being, but I see in my members outside of me another law waging war against my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty dark. The very next line. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, Susan. I got a question. Okay. It seems like the enemy is freedom. If God had given us the freedom for choice, then we wouldn't have this sin of freedom, which is tempting us one way or the other. So why not why not create a creature that doesn't have freedom if we know that that's our foul our foul Why not create so Susie's saying why if freedom is the problem, because we have a choice. So why not create a creature without freedom. I mean, that seems like it would be really good. Anybody want to respond to that? He wants us to love him. So like when, it, when your robot dog curls up in your lap and, and because you programmed it to, that's not love. You know, like so, you know, so, so yeah, freedom, love is a choice. Love, love is... And you have to have freedom. That's right. You have to have freedom in order to love. That's right. We'd have no reason to seek him because it would just be the way, the way that it is. Now you are not wrong, at all, but it's what we do with the freedom we are given that creates the problem and creates the need for grace. But it's not any one of us here that can say that that we're without that. We've all been given freedom, but not one of us has used it in the way that it should have been used by not sinning. Well, you're setting yourself up for a Romans 8 kind of day. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Every one of us has taken our freedom and run. Give them an inch, they'll take a mile, right? That's, that's every one of us. Every one of us stands uh, in uh, basically condemned by the law. The law describes a wonderful life, and what Paul is saying, I, there is a lot of there's a lot of scholarly ink spilled over whether Paul is talking about his pre-Christian self or his post-Christian self. And I, um, I have to say, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I identify with this like today. You know, so I have to say that I think he is talking at least. You know, I, I can't. I, I looked at the context and the Roman. You know milieu of thought and all that, but I can tell you that I know exactly what he's talking about 30 years uh, into my Christian life and 12 years into my ordained ministry, that I can say, the thing I want to do, I do not do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? Like, I know that. And so, you may know that too. And the very next line is, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It, It it puts him, it drives him to his knees, looking up, saying, thank you, Lord. And then we come to Romans 8.1. There is, therefore, that giving, given what we've just said, that all of us have transgressed because of the law. Remembering what he said, the law of, in chapter 3, the law of God, um, I mean, the righteousness of God is made manifest no longer through the law, but through faith. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, and I just want to cry thinking about the grace that comes because 
of the very fact that we have transgressed our freedom and what our freedom is for, that's part of human nature. And we have uh, been given this incredible gift of grace and reconciliation with our Father. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, so all of those things that, that you feel burdened by, stressed by, condemned by, listen, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. doesn't mean you don't have to manage your earthly affairs, you know? And you can't say, well, honey, you're condemning me because I did something really stupid, and so, but there's no condemnation for me for I'm in Christ Jesus. You should probably deal with honey and, and you know, like, make up, bring flowers or whatever, you, need, you know, like, there's still, you know, you still got to live your life. But in terms of our reconciliation with God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this, this equates perfectly with the, um, the servants in the sermon today and the, and the talents and, and everything because there's no condemnation. We've been given this extraordinary gift of grace. And it is ours now to revel in and to take it out and play with it and watch it grow. Right? So, uh, Martin Luther said this, You must get used to the idea... And this is kind of a long quote. This is Martin Luther wrote. Um, he wrote a commentary on the on Romans, but his preface to that commentary is one of the the great pieces of Christian literature of all times. It's what John Wesley was reading when he came to Christ, many years into his ordained ministry. But um, Martin Luther said this: "You must get used to the idea that it is one thing to do the works of the law, and quite another to fulfill it." The works of the law are everything that a person does or can do of his own free will and by his own powers to obey the law. In other words, you can drive in the lane under the speed limit. Like, you can. You just can't do it and be thankful for the city council and the engineers. You're just patting yourself on the back. So you're doing the works of the law, but fulfilling it is different, he says. And we'll get to that. The works of the law are everything that a person does or can do of his own free will by his own powers to obey the law. But because in doing such good works, the heart abhors the law and yet is forced to obey it, the works are at a total loss and they are completely useless. This is what St. Paul means in chapter 3 when he says, No human being is justified before God before through the works of the law. How can anybody prepare himself for good by means of works, if he does no good work except with aversion and constraint in his heart. You're driving down the road, I'm following the speed limit, but I hate the speed limit. How can such a work please God if it proceeds from an averse and unwilling heart? But to fulfill the law means to do its work eagerly, lovingly, and freely without the constraint of the law. It means to live well and in a manner pleasing to God as though there were no law or punishment. If there was no speed limit, I would still drive this speed. If there was no law that I should love my neighbor, I'm still going to love my neighbor because the, I'm not saved by the law. This is just what God has created in me. One of my, I've, I'm sure I've quoted it before, but one of my professors said a, a sentence that, that, that has stuck with me, just struck me dumb. Grace creates what the law wants. Grace creates what the law wants. The law wants this perfect life, but only it, can, it has no power to create the thing it describes. But grace creates the heart of love that fulfills the law. 
It's the Holy Spirit, however, who puts such eagerness of unconstrained love into the heart, as Paul says in chapter 5. But the Spirit is given only in, with, and through faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in his introduction. So too, faith comes only through the Word of God, the Gospel, that preaches Christ, how He is both Son of God and man, how He died and rose for our sake. That is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith, it is, that brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. The Spirit, in turn, renders the heart glad and free as the law demands. Then good works proceed from faith itself. So, uh, I will be happy to share that quote if you want to take some time to study it. But Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the good law of God, but it creates death in us. But the law of the Spirit is what He calls it. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. So, there is just extraordinary description of what God has done for us and that we are made righteous by the work of Christ. And the Christian life is learning to live as if that is actually true about us. Because if you look at your life and examine your life and see your life, you will see that it's really hard to live as if there's no condemnation for you before God. And that is a life of, of learning. That's why we study. That's why we read the Scriptures. Um, that's why we pray. That's why we worship. Because we're learning to live into this God who has given us uh, such grace. The, um, so the chapter begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. But in the middle it says some amazing things. Verses 12 through 17, we are heirs with Christ. If you can get your head around that, we are basically in debt to God for His for what He has given to us, and yet He has made us sons and daughters. And He has not given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we actually are able to say with Jesus, Abba Father. And he calls us co-heirs with Christ. If you and I are co-heirs, what does that mean about what we are going to receive? Crown of righteousness. Crown of righteousness? Yeah, no, I mean like if you and I are brothers, and our father has died and left us an inheritance, and we are co-heirs, what does that mean? 50-50. 50-50. We're going to get, if we're co-heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ, we're going to receive what Christ has received from the Father. Can you get your head around that? You get all those talents. You get all those talents, buddy. You better not bury them. <laughs> and all the promises are kept. There's not a single promise that will not be kept. There's not a single promise that will not be kept. That's right. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, right? Because He's all truth. That He is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So everything that the five, so you you will receive the crown of righteousness that Jesus has received. Pretty remarkable. That's verses twelve through seventeen. Verses eighteen through twenty-five. 
We await future glory and our eyes are on Him. He talks a lot about the... Um, he says the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, it is uh, something to be taken for granted. Just because there's no condemnation doesn't mean you're not going to have a hard time in this world. It's a fallen world. We have all sorts of things that we have to deal with, whether it's cancer or unemployment or poverty or um, you know, uh, your crazy in-laws or whatever it is. You know, like that's somebody else, not me. But um, the... Um, to t- <laughs> Tell Amy, but the um, the um, just whatever it is, there are there are the sufferings of this world. Paul says are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. This is the paragraph that says uh, Romans eight twenty eight, all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. But let me tell you, you can't have verse twenty eight without verse twenty seven. Let me read that to you. Verse twenty seven doesn't get near the publicity. But it has, to ha- it has to be first. He who searches hearts, this is, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the, no, I'm sorry, he who searches hearts is, is the Father. He knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This Holy Spirit is praying for you according to the will of God. Therefore, For those who love God, all things work together for good. Because the Spirit is interceding for you. And that's why nothing that we suffer in this world is worth comparing to the glory. I've talked a lot, I feel like in recent months, just as what's come up in the Scriptures we've been teaching, that that what we need is a view of the finish line so we can make it through the race. That we know that heaven's coming. And we know that the hardship is is not all that, that we have to deal with. That, that there will be a day where every tear is wiped away and there is no more crying and no more death and no more pain. And if we can keep that in front of us, then we can make it through the marathon. Um, the Spirit is interceding for us. And then we have the part that's always read in, sermon, uh, in um, funerals that is really just so incredibly uh, wonderful, this... Because uh, we started with no condemnation, we end with no separation. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Remember, we're co-heirs with Christ. He's going to give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So now, not only is the Spirit interceding for us, we see that Jesus also interceding for us. You have two-thirds of the Trinity praying to the other third of the Trinity for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? These are all things that, other than the sword maybe, but Paul assumed that he would one day face the sword. These are all things that Paul himself has faced for the gospel. Knowing full well that Christ has been with him the whole way through. 
tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. As it is written, now he quotes, but this this is this verse gets skipped in the in the funeral readings. And he has a quote from a psalm. I think it's Psalm 49. I didn't write it down, but I think it's Psalm 49. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You can see why they take that out of the funeral, uh, right? But what the psalmist is speaking to God directly, for your sake, God, we're we're getting our tails kicked here. Like it's time for you to show up, is what the psalmist is saying. And Paul is saying, I have been where the psalmist was. I feel like I'm getting my tail kicked for Jesus. And yet I'm saying to you, Romans, that nothing is is separating us from the love of Christ. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Why would he say that? How can we be more than conquerors if we're still getting our tail kicked? Don't conquerors win the day? When you're getting your tail kicked, do you feel like more than a conqueror? Or less than a conqueror? (laughs) I feel like less. You lose the battle, you win the war. That's a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. How is it true that we are more than conquerors even while we are being persecuted or stressed, barked at, depressed? Yes, Rick? Well, well without faith, then you do feel like you're not a Without faith, you do feel like you're not a conqueror. Yes. Through faith is the only way that that can happen. Because the conquering has already happened, right? Yeah. Well, what's persecuting you is not what you're conquering, and vice versa. Okay, so that's important. Say that again. What's persecuting you is not what you're conquering. What's, what's persecuting you is not what you're what conquering. Is not what is being conquered. Yes. I think it's a better way to say it. Because, you know, people like the trials of this life are not what we're conquering. We're conquering sin and death. Or sin and death is being conquered for us. Yeah, so Jesus didn't come to defeat the IRS, right? Yeah. <laughs> came to defeat sin and death. So pay your taxes, and, and you may have to go through some tribulation. But He has come to defeat sin and death. Yes, Richard? It's separation from God yes. that's being conquered. Okay. Sin and death. Yes, yeah, separation from God. Is, is there one separating from God and Jesus reconciles that separation, and through Him, we're reconciled to yes. God. Yeah, He doesn't say against all these things we're more than conquerors. He says in them, in the midst of them, we remain more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. His righteousness is imputed. What does imputed mean, counselor? Yeah, it's past tense. We're already seated in heaven with Christ. Yeah, we imputed means Christ's righteousness has been declared to you. He's written, scratched your name off of your report card and wrote Jesus on it, and you got what? C plus. A, yeah, and and Jesus, you got Jesus's uh, 
uh, report card and they scratched Jesus' name off and wrote your name on it. He got all A's, right? A plus. So that's, that's imputed righteousness. Yeah, so you have been given his righteousness. Well, can I ask one question? You can ask a question, Susie. Go. If it's just like the person that the getting ready to be executed by however means. What is his, and he comes to Christ. Yeah. And here we, the rest of us, we've kind of, we got the hint and we're working toward it. Being a better person and be a better Christian. Is his punishment supposed to be that he's been cheated all the time before? I mean, there has what what we're all getting the same reward, right? We're all in the same reward, but isn't there any punishment for him, or is it just the fact that he gets cheated of everything that we're getting? I mean, I think about the laborers in the vineyard parable, and and the ones who came at the end of the day got the same as as the one uh, ones who worked all day. And I also think about uh, the thief, thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. So I, I think it, it's not, I mean, it, grace is grace. And we all get the same reward. But the thing about living into it now is that you get to know Christ now. So what the, what the punishment that the, the, the person that you're talking about endured on an eternal level is that they hadn't known Christ their whole life. Or hadn't lived into that glory of knowing knowing Christ. That's one of the points of the prodigal. One of the points of the prodigal. Yeah. You're always with me. You have been with me all yeah. this time. Now he didn't recognize that as a gift. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact just recently a new little saying came to me that is my new mantra in Tribulation, which is dare to be brave, and I see that because Christ is there. Yeah, yeah, you can be brave because Christ is there. Yes, Ellen. And I'd always heard that you know you have people that don't know Christ on this earth, and they're doing really well, and then we're coming against tribulation. Someone told me one time that those people who don't know Christ, this is the only heaven they're ever going to know, yeah. which is on this earth. And what we go through on earth is the only hell we're ever going to know. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of put it in perspective to me, you know, when I see people who don't follow Christ getting away with things, it's like, this is all they've got without Jesus. Yeah. It flips <coughs> Last thing, Dorsey. We, we, we get the devil kicked out of us here in this life, but this isn't the life we're supposed to be living. Yes. Yes, this is not the life that we're supposed to be living we're, we're, for. We're living for the next life. It, you know, but it's... Yes, and we do need to do the best we can to live in this life. We live for others, right? We live to love God and love our neighbor. Yeah, but we're we're living. We're looking ahead to the finish line, no doubt. We're living Yes, yes, indeed. We are witnesses. All right. Well, that's gonna do it. I I th- I forgot to look and see what is next week. Is chapter eighty-two? I think it's the fruit of the spirit, um, and uh, and I think that's what it is, and that's in uh, Galatians. Um, five Galatians five. The um, the how to teach a class 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 on how to teach a class. I'm gonna do that. I think I'm gonna do it af- right after the 10:30 service. Uh, starting what do we say o- October. Wait, Elaine, what do we say? Uh, the how to teach class class. Do we say that it's gonna be? Yeah, first of October, going in the middle of November, right after the ten thirty service. If that, if you want to do that, and that doesn't work for you, will you let me know? If you do want to do it, will you let me know? 
Sign up for uh, bus your tables and sign the uh, sheets and turn those in. That would be fantastic. God bless you. See you in church.